0: Lesson 12 for June 11 through to 17, Jesus' Last Days. Sabbath afternoon, June 11. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come in this book of Matthew now to a time which is very serious. It's very serious in the life story of Jesus. It's also very serious in his actual life at that time. As we come to this period of his life where He makes that major decision for us. We pray that your spirit will guide us, that our hearts may be opened and that we may be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31. This very night you will all fall away on account of me. Let's read that again. Matthew 26 verse 31. This very night you will all fall away on account of me. In this lesson, Jesus is now entering the final moments before the cross. The world, even the universe, begins to face the most crucial moment in the history of creation. So many lessons can be derived from the events that we will look at this week. But as we read, let's focus on one, freedom and free will. Look at how the various characters used the great and costly gift of freedom. Look at the powerful and even eternal consequences that arose from the use, one way or another, of this gift. Peter, Judas and the woman with the alabaster box all had to make choices. But most important of all, Jesus too had to make choices and the greatest one was to go to the cross even though his human nature had cried out against it. As he said in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The irony is incredible. The gift of free will that we had abused through Jesus to this very moment, where Jesus, using his own free will, had to choose whether or not to save us from the destruction that our abuse of free will would otherwise have brought us. Sunday, June 16, A Beautiful Work We are now entering the last days of Jesus' life on earth. He is yet to go to the cross, has yet to be resurrected, and has yet to reveal Himself fully as the crucified and risen Saviour of the world. However much those who followed Jesus loved Him and appreciated Him, they still had so much to learn about who He was and all that He would do for them. Looking back, with the entirety of the Bible at our disposal, and especially Paul's powerful explanations of the atoning death of Jesus, we know so much more about what Jesus was going to do for us than his followers did at the time of this story. Question. With this background in mind, read Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through to 16. What is the significance of this expensive gift, and what should it teach us about how we should relate To Jesus. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver so from that time he sought opportunity to betray him notice how Matthew places the story of Jesus head being anointed which probably happened prior to the triumphal entry within the growing plot to kill him While some of his own people were planning to do him harm, this woman poured out unrestrained love and devotion upon him with her alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. While the disciples were lamenting the waste, Jesus called what she did a beautiful work. By this action, very extravagant outwardly, the woman was revealing the true depth of emotion in her heart toward Jesus. Though she surely didn't know all that was to come or what it would mean, she understood enough to know that she owed so much to Jesus and thus she wanted to give back so much as well. Perhaps she had heard his words in Luke 14, 48. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Meanwhile, the disciples, who had surely seen more of what Jesus had done than had that woman, still missed the point entirely. Ellen White writes in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 1101, That ointment was a symbol of the overflowing heart of the giver. It was an outward demonstration of a love fed by heavenly streams until it overflowed, and that ointment of Mary, which the disciples called waste, is repeating itself a thousand times in the susceptible hearts of others. And so to finish today, what should this story tell us about how we should be responding to what we have been given in Jesus, using your free will What beautiful work can we perform for him in response to what we have been given in him? Monday, June thirteen, the New Covenant. Question: Read Matthew chapter twenty-six, verses seventeen to nineteen. Why is it so significant that this was the time of the Passover? Also, we'll look at Exodus twelve, verses one to seventeen, and First Corinthians five, verse seven. Well, first of all, Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Let's compare that with Exodus chapter 12, verses 1-17. to 17. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And... If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbour next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood, and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I was, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread." On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. And First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. The story of the Exodus is, of course, a story of redemption, of deliverance, a work that God does for those who could not do it for themselves. What an appropriate symbol for what Jesus was soon to do for us all. Question. Read Matthew chapter 26, verses 26-29. to 29. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? And what do these words mean for us now? Matthew 26, beginning at verse 26. And, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, "'Take, eat, this is my body.' Then he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, "'Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you,' In my Father's kingdom. Jesus was pointing them to the deeper meaning of the Passover. Deliverance from Egypt was a wonderful manifestation of the lordship and power of God. But in the end, it wasn't enough. It wasn't the redemption that the Hebrews or any of us really needed. We need the redemption that is in Jesus, eternal life as it says in hebrews 9:15 and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance jesus points them to the real meaning of the wine the real meaning of the bread they were all pointing to his death on the cross Thus, unlike the animal sacrifices that pointed forward to the death of Jesus, partaking in the communion service points us back to it. In each case, the emblems point us to Jesus on the cross. And yet, the cross doesn't end the story. When Jesus says to the disciples that he won't drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom in Matthew 26-29 he's pointing them to the future to the second coming and beyond. And so to finish today think about Jesus' words that he won't drink of the fruit of the vine until we are with him in his Father's kingdom. What does this say about the kind of intimacy we shall have with Him. How can we learn to experience that intimacy with Him now? Tuesday, June 14, Gethsemane. During Passover week, the priests sacrificed thousands and thousands of lambs at the temple just up the hill from the Kidron Valley. The blood from the lambs was poured onto the altar and then flowed down a channel to a brook that ran through the Kidron Valley. The brook may have actually turned red from the blood of the lambs. Jesus and his disciples would have crossed over the red waters of this brook on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Question Read Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through to 46. Why was the Gethsemane experience so difficult for Jesus? What was really happening there? Let's begin Matthew 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It wasn't physical death that Jesus was afraid of when he prayed that the cup would pass from him. The cup Jesus dreaded was separation from God. Jesus knew that to become sin for us, to die in our stead, to bear in himself the wrath of God against sin, he would have to be separated from his Father. Violation of God's holy law was so serious that it demanded the death of the perpetrator. Jesus came precisely because he was going to take that death upon himself in order to spare us from it. This is what was at stake for Jesus and for us. From The Desire of Ages, page 687 and 690, we read, With the issues of the conflict before him, Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be eternal. He would be identified with Satan's kingdom and would never more be one with God. The awful moment had come. That moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, Let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin and I will go back to my father. Will the Son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? End of quote. So, to finish today, how should Jesus' willingness to do what he did for us impact every aspect of our lives, especially when it comes to helping others? How can we learn to model better the character of Jesus? In our lives. Wednesday, June 15. Judas sells his soul. How sad the story of Judas. Had he died before his last journey to Jerusalem, he might have been among sacred history's most venerated heroes. Church buildings could have been named after him. Instead, his name is forever linked to betrayal and treachery. Question. Read John chapter 6, verse 70 and Luke 22, verse 3. How do they help to explain the actions of Judas? John 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Of course, blaming Satan for what Judas did is fine. But it raises the question. What was it about Judas that enabled the devil to lead him to such treachery? After all, it was even said that Satan wanted to get Peter as well. Luke 22 verse 31 And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. The difference, however, must be that Judas refused to give himself fully to the Lord. He must have hung on to some sin, some character defect that enabled Satan to come in and lead him to do what he did. Again we see another powerful consequence of free choice. Question: Read Matthew chapter 26 verses 47 to 50 and chapter 27 verses 1 to 10. What lessons should we take from the sad story of Jesus? Let's begin at Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, Why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And, Matthew 27, verses 1 to 10, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, Seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together, and bought with them the potter's field, to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. In Matthew 26, verses 47 to 50, we see Judas guiding a detachment of soldiers, that's about 600 soldiers, as well as chief priests and elders. What a tremendous moment of power for Judas. When you've got something that people really want, you possess tremendous power, as Judas does here. That's fine, at least for as long as you have what they want. But if they care about you only because of what you have and then eventually they get from you what they want, they finally no longer need you. Within hours, Judas will be alone and with nothing. Another important lesson focuses on what Judas lost his soul over. 30 pieces of silver? In today's term, the amount has been said to equal about between one and four months' wages, depending upon which silver coin is meant. Even if it were ten or a hundred times that amount, look at what it cost him. And, as the story shows, he'd lost even that. He didn't get to enjoy any of it. Instead, he threw it all back at the feet of the ones who first gave it to him. What a powerful example of how, in the end, anything that causes us to turn away from Jesus, anything that causes us to lose our soul, is as useless as was the money to Judas. Judas was so close to eternal life, and yet he chose to throw it away for nothing. Thursday, June 16. Peter's denial. Jesus knew beforehand about Judas's free-will decision to betray him, one of the many instances in the Bible showing that God's foreknowledge of our free choices in no way infringes upon the freedom of those choices. And he knew not only of Judas's betrayal, but also that Peter, despite all his bravado, would at the crucial moment flee and then deny him. Question. Read Matthew chapter 26, verses 51 to 75. Why do you think Peter denied Jesus? Matthew 26, beginning at verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword." Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses?' Look, now you have heard his blasphemy, what do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also is with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Often we have the idea that Peter denied Jesus simply because he was afraid. Yet it was Peter, according to John 18.10, who had the courage to pull his sword against Roman soldiers. Peter was willing to go out in a blaze of glory until Jesus stopped him. So what changed in Peter from the moment he's brandishing a sword to just a little while later, when he's denying he knows Jesus? Why did he say that he wasn't a disciple? Why does peter say in matthew twenty six seventy two "I do not know the man, maybe because Peter realized that he didn't know the man, didn't know what his coming was for, and didn't know what his arrest meant, so in a moment of panic, he denied he ever knew him. Perhaps Peter denied Jesus when he realized that he didn't understand what Jesus was doing. He gave up when he saw what he thought was Jesus giving up. Peter was still putting too much faith in his own understanding rather than putting his full faith in Jesus, even despite all the incredible signs he had seen and even despite his bold confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ in Matthew 16.16. Peter's denial should tell us that all the miracles and signs in the world won't keep us faithful to God until our hearts are fully surrendered to Him. And so, to finish today. In Luke's account, the third time Peter denied that he was a disciple of Jesus, Jesus himself turned and looked straight at Peter, as it says in Luke twenty-two sixty-one. This is the word «emblepo», used to describe the way Jesus looked deep into Peter's soul when they first met. John chapter 1, verse 42 uses it as well. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. What hope can we draw from this for ourselves regarding God's love for us, even when we fail, as Peter did here? Friday, June 17. In 1959, two hoodlums entered a home in Kansas and murdered two teenage children and their parents. Before the killers were found, the brother of the murdered father wrote this letter to the local paper, and it's from Truman Capote in Cold Blood, page 124. There is much resentment in this community. I have even heard on more than one occasion that the man, when found, should be hanged from the nearest tree. Let us not feel this way. The deed is done, and taking another life cannot change it. Instead, let us forgive as God would have us do. It is not right that we should hold a grudge in our hearts. The doer of this act is going to find it very difficult indeed to live with himself. His only peace of mind will be when he goes to God for forgiveness. Let us not stand in the way, but instead give prayers that he may find his peace. Putting aside questions about capital punishment, we can see here a powerful expression of the kind of grace that Christ offers to us all. Even after Peter's inexcusable denial, Christ forgave him and entrusted him with the work of winning souls as we read in Desire of Ages, page 713, Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but he now realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him, and how accurately he had read his heart, the falseness of which was unknown even to himself. End of quote. He knew what was in Peter even before Peter knew, and he knew what Peter would do even before Peter knew, and yet His love and grace remain constant despite Peter's having no one to blame but himself for his actions. As we deal with people who make similar mistakes, how crucial that we learn to extend grace to them just as we would wish it for ourselves. And that brings us to our two discussion questions. One, every story of conversion, wrote C.S. Lewis, is the story of a blessed defeat. What does that mean? How have you experienced what this defeat is? And what is defeated and what wins? And question two. In the story of Jesus in Gethsemane, Jesus asks that the cup pass from him, but only if it is possible. What does this imply other than that if humanity were to be saved, Jesus would have to give up his life? Why? Why? Why was the death of Jesus, the sin-bearer, absolutely essential? Why couldn't there have been another way for God to solve the problem of sin in the light of the great controversy? Inside Story. Our mission story this week continues as Try Jesus Part 2. One Saturday afternoon, a few weeks later, we were busy running errands and cleaning house when someone knocked at the door. I opened it to find a woman and two men whom I'd never seen before. They were smiling and said that they had brought a Bible for Lauren Moore. Are you Lauren? they asked. Soon I was smiling too as I explained that Lauren was my daughter. I called Lauren and enjoyed the surprised looks on my guest faces when a seven-year-old girl bounded down the stairs and introduced herself as Lauren Moore. The strangers smiled warmly and gave Lauren her new Bible. Lauren was so excited that she jumped around hugging the Bible to her. A few weeks later, the friendly woman who had given Lauren the Bible returned and introduced herself as Gail. She asked whether Lauren had read her Bible yet and Would you like some Bible study lessons to help her understand what she was reading? Lauren enthusiastically said yes to the lessons. When Gail learned that our son Dane didn't have a Bible, she promised to bring him one too. The next Saturday afternoon, Gail arrived with Dane's Bible. The trio sat down at our kitchen table while Gail patiently helped them take the first baby steps into God's Word using Bible study lessons she had brought for them. The children enjoyed the lesson so much that Gail promised to return every week. At first, we were a little doubtful about what the Bible lessons might try to teach our children, but we decided that it would be good for them to learn some Bible principles. I listened in on the Bible studies as I went about my housework. It was so interesting that Neil and I sometimes left our tasks and listened more carefully. After the lessons, as I walked Gail to her car, I sometimes asked her to explain certain points more carefully. I had never met a Christian like Gail. She always seemed so happy, and she listened patiently to all of our questions. Her answers were simple, yet deep, and she was so humble that my respect for her grew. And this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.